A reading from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of the Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to the Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why did you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is the word of God. Amen. Thank you for that reading. All right, there we are. 
Well, today we are beginning a new series on the life of Moses, and we use about every ounce of creative energy that we had in order to come up with a title for the series, which we are calling The Life of Moses. Now, a series like this requires us to look at long narrative sections together, like what was just read. And some of you might be thinking, well, great, I love stories. And some of you might be thinking, I'm not really ready for this. But at the outset of a series like this, I want to talk briefly about the importance of biblical narrative. See, a big part of why the narrative sections of the Bible are so important is, because, is that we are storied creatures. We think of ourselves and our world in terms of story. So for instance, if you are just getting to know someone, if you're introducing yourself to a new person, you typically don't have an exchange where you just give blunt facts to the person. Right? Greetings, name, Nick, age, 34, large white man. Right? We, don't, we don't interact with each other that way. No, we, we place ourselves in a story. Right? We talk about where we came from, who we belong to, where we're headed. We think of our lives and the world around us in stories. Propositional truths, like what we find in the New Testament letters or, or other places in the Old Testament, like the book of Proverbs, they are incredibly important. But propositions divorced from reality, divorced from people, divorced from relationships, they aren't particularly life-giving. So God, knowing this about us, since you know, he made us, not only gives us truths about himself and the world in which we live and the best ways for us to live in it, but he gives us further aid right, by putting those truths oftentimes in the context of story or he reinforces them there. And in doing that, he gives those truths flesh and bones and he enables us to really connect. So over the next few months, we're going to be looking at stories together. This, this uh, series, The Life of Moses, is going to take us all the way until Good Friday. And I would encourage you, as we dig into this series, to really dig into these stories. Right? Let the narratives sink in to penetrate your hearts. Right? See and appreciate how God works in the lives of real people. And note that while we're tracing the life of Moses, none of these stories are really just about Moses. Right? Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. But again, these books aren't about him. They are ultimately about God. They're about who God is, his, his love for us, the ways in which he acts on behalf of his people, and how we see all of those things most clearly in the person and work of Jesus. So we begin our study today by walking through the story of Exodus 2 is what we read. But we're going to do Exodus 1 and 2, so, so buckle up. Uh, but before we do that, let's, uh, let's pray. So would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the ways in which you know us, the ways in which you know what really connects to our hearts. And so Lord, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts right now by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that he would move, that he would mold and shape us, that he would enable us to hear from you and to behold Jesus. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. So last week, I, I did something that I have been avoiding for 
close to nine years. I watched Frozen. I did it. I made it through like five years of fatherhood without watching Frozen, but we, we sat down last week and, and we did it. And I don't really know why I had been avoiding it. I, I think I've got kind of a contrarian nature. So if things are popular, like I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. But I did, and it was good. And uh, the, the, the one thing, the one sort of downside of it was after we watched it uh, that night when our uh, two-year-old uh, Harper went to go take her bath, she ended up turning on the water as hot as it would go because she did not want to get frozen like Anna. Um, yeah. But as I've been studying this passage, you know, I thought about Frozen and its narrative arc. Right? We're introduced to our main characters. They end up enduring one or multiple hardships, but they come out better because of them. And those hardships ended up providing the things. They ended up molding and shaping our main characters into the people that they needed to be in order to save the day. Now, this narrative arc is not unique to Frozen. It is in about just, it isn't just about every single uh, Disney movie and many other movies beyond the world of Disney. And I think that this type of story is so popular because at least to a degree, it's true to life. It is so often the hard things, right, the times of testing that end up shaping us the most. And by God's grace, they can shape us ultimately for the better. And that is what we see happening here in Exodus 2. Moses was born into hardship. And pretty soon after getting to know him, we see his life get completely turned upside down. But God uses this time to mold Moses into the person that he needed to be in order to be used by God. So what I'd like for us to do now is to walk through the story together. And again, we're going to be looking at Exodus 1 and 2 because Exodus 2 doesn't make a ton of sense without Exodus 1. And we're going to be doing so in order to see how God works. And as we do so, I would encourage you to try to find yourself in the story. Where have there been times in your life where you have felt lost without hope? Times where you find yourself in the wilderness, questioning whether God could really do something good in and through those circumstances. This is a worthy exercise because at the end of the day, Israel's story is our story. So we're going to begin sort of with Act 1 of the Israelites in Egypt. Now, the book of Exodus opens with a genealogy. I know you're all thinking, like all great stories do, I'm so excited, but let me assure you, it gets even better. The totality of the opening genealogy is on the screen, so don't, don't worry. It's not just an endless list of names and places. But it's there to show us how the entire nation of Israel found itself in Egypt. And the later chapters of Genesis describe how that happened. See, Israel was composed of 12 tribes that descend from the 12 sons of Jacob. They're all brothers. And Jacob's name became Israel, so this is why this is the nation of Israel. Well, this family, despite being chosen by God, was a rather dysfunctional family. And there was a great deal of sibling rivalry, all stemming from Jacob's favoritism. See, Jacob, of his 12 sons, had a favorite, his son Joseph. 
Well, Joseph's brothers see the special treatment that he receives and expectedly they resent him for it. And eventually their resentment turns to hatred, hatred so intense that they seek to kill their brother. But one of the brothers thinks better of it. See, if they kill him, then there's no profit to be made from his dead body. So they instead resolve to sell him into slavery. So that's what they do. They take their brother, their flesh and blood, and they sell him into slavery. They then return home and they convince their father Jacob that his favorite son has died. Well, eventually Joseph makes his way down to Egypt as a slave. But even though everything appeared to be going wrong for him, God was with him. And through a long journey with some major ups and downs, he eventually becomes a ruler in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And when Joseph looks back on his life, he sees the hand of God mightily at work. And so he can declare to his brothers, at the ones who sold him into slavery at the end of Genesis, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the story, it takes place from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50 with a a minor and really obscure break in Genesis 38. It's a good time. So I really encourage you to read it and, and to be encouraged by it. All right, so Joseph ruled in Egypt, and all of his brothers made their way down there as well, as we see in the beginning of Exodus. But by the time we get to the action of Exodus, we read that Joseph had died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Generations passed and Israel increased in numbers. God's blessing was on them. And what we read in verse 7 is an echo of the blessing that was given to Adam and Eve and later to Abraham, that that God's people would increase and multiply, that they would be fruitful. That's good news, right? Well, not according to everyone. So the king that Joseph served under, who looked on God's people with favor and, and praised their fruitfulness, along with Joseph, had died. And now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And this new king saw the increasing population of Israelites as a threat. And his concern, according to verse 10, is that if these Israelites continue to increase in number, they could join forces with Egypt's enemies and cause major problems for the empire. So the Pharaoh then engages in three different strategies to try to stamp out the Israelites. The first was to afflict them with brutal taskmasters and hard labor. But the strategy ultimately backfires because, as we read in verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So this Pharaoh then tried a different tactic, and we read about that in verses 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. See, Pharaoh figured, if I can't break the people, I will just get rid of them. 
So he enlists two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, whose names mean beautiful and sparkle. So if you're in the market for some baby girl names, let me recommend Shifra and, and Pua. Uh, one of our good friends just had a baby girl, and I feel like it's a missed opportunity that you know, she didn't choose either of these. That's okay. Anyway, so Pharaoh asks these two women to do something despicable, to kill all of the male children that they help to deliver. Now, infanticide at that time was relatively commonplace, but typically it was females who were the victims. There are many accounts in antiquity of little girls being left on the side of the road or being thrown into ditches to die. This was particularly common in the Greco-Roman world, and it's been documented that Christianity, with its radical message that all people, regardless of their gender or any other factor, are image bearers of God and therefore have rights and dignity. It was Christianity that turned the tide and eradicated this practice in the ancient world. But we're not there yet. So Pharaoh tries to influence these two women to do this evil deed, targeting male children instead, likely thinking that in doing this, they could decimate Israel's future fighting force and more easily, uh, more easily bring the Hebrew women into Egyptian society. But we're told in verse 17 that the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And I, I love how they go about doing this. They end up deceiving Pharaoh. In the next verses we read, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. They basically say to Pharaoh, you know, we would do what, what, we're, what you're telling us to do, but these, these Hebrew women are different. Like, they're just pushing out babies before we even get there. I mean, what we have here is some good old civil disobedience. Right? The Bible tells us in multiple places that we are to honor the governing authorities. We are to seek the peace of the city, obey our rulers. Right? Peter and Paul both tell us this in the New Testament. And the ruler that they were talking about being subject to was Nero, not a good guy. But the reason we honor authority is because God is sovereign. So he is ultimately over whoever is over us, and he's the one that puts rulers in place. But if an earthly, if an earthly ruler commands what God forbids, or forbids what God commands, then we follow the example of Shifra and Puah. They feared God and refused to do what was evil, even though the king commanded it. And I love that in this story, they are named. Two women at a time when women were not treated as equals, and women who were not of any rank, they are named. So now nearly 4,000 years after the writing of this text, we are talking about Shifra and Pua. The king of Egypt? Not named. Now, the guy who would have been one of the most powerful people on the planet at the time, I don't know his name. Do you know his name? You could probably find out, and you can tell me later. But it's such a powerful, a powerful example of God using you know, the least among us to accomplish his purposes, how he flips the world order upside down. And that's a theme throughout the entire Bible. 
Okay, so attempt two also fails. And so now this Pharaoh tries one last strategy. He commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Slavery didn't work. The midwives didn't listen. So let's just toss those boys into the Nile. It's a desperate scheme from a desperate man. But this then sets the scene for the birth of Moses. So after this decree has been issued, we read in the beginning of chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could no longer hide him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. With this new command in place, the boys are to be cast into the Nile. A boy is born to a Hebrew couple, a son. Now, normally, this would have been cause for tremendous joy. But in this particular instance, it was reason for fear and trembling. And the boy's mother tried to hide him for a time, but after three months, it was no longer sustainable. So she takes a basket. Now, interestingly, the word that's translated basket is the Hebrew word for ark. And it's the same word that we see in the story of Noah in Genesis 6 through 9, which is a powerful foreshadowing. That the God who had once saved his people through the water by placing them in the ark would do so again. So the boy is placed in the ark basket and in accordance with the law is put in the Nile. But as you continue reading, I think it is safe to assume that this mother had a plan. So the location where the baby is placed just so happens to be where the daughter of Pharaoh goes to bathe. And when she went out to do so, in verse 5 we read, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She has compassion on this child. And of course she does. It's a three-month-old baby. You may not even like kids, but your heart melts at a three-month-old. Right, they're beginning to sleep through the night. They can hold their heads up. It's like max cuteness. <laughs> well, in the next verse, we see the boy's sister, who had been watching the whole time, pop out and say, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So this boy gets to spend his early years with his own family. The truth of his identity likely would have been known to him the whole time. But eventually, verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The boy's name became Moses. And this name is interesting because it had meaning in both Hebrew and Egyptian. In Hebrew, the name sounds like the verb moshah, to draw out. And we see that specifically referenced in verse 10, I drew him out of the water. 
but the name is also related to the common Egyptian word for son. And think of the irony here. Pharaoh, in his last effort to get rid of the Israelites, issues a decree that floats Israel's future leader, the man whom God would use to rescue his people, right into his own household to be raised up as a son. God has a sense of humor. So Moses grows up with this dual identity. Right? On the one hand, he experiences the privileges of being a son in Pharaoh's household. But on the other, he knows where he comes from and what his people are suffering. So now we get to the next act. And in verse 11, we read, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his own people. Time goes on, and we learn from Acts 7 that this event took place when Moses was about 40 years old. And Moses decides to go out and visit his people. And the word that's translated people is actually brothers. So twice we see that in, in, in this verse. Moses goes out and he sees his brothers. He sees his brothers suffering. He never ceases to identify with his people. And when he looks upon their suffering, he can't take it. He has to do something. And so in verse 12, we see what he does. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So there's an impulse to do something. And I think that is a good impulse. The result, however, not so good. He took matters into his own hands, and someone is killed as a result. And even though Moses went through the efforts of looking this way and that, apparently it wasn't quite enough, and the thing became known. And in the verses that follow, we read, When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why did you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Moses then remains in Midian for 40 years years, 40 years of living on the run. He went from having two peoples to having no one. Now Moses does begin to build a life there in the wilderness. He marries a woman and they have a child together, but the child's name indicates that Moses doesn't see himself as ever belonging in Midian. In verse 22 we read, she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses didn't belong in Midian, and he knew it. He didn't want to be there. But he needed to be there. See, before fleeing into the desert, Moses is hot-headed and impulsive. He takes matters into his own hands, and he acts rashly. These are not good qualities in a leader. 
These are especially not good qualities in a leader of God's people. So God sends him into the wilderness. And he uses that time to mold and shape Moses into the person that he needs to be, into a person able to be used by God. So think for a moment. What seasons in your life have provided the best opportunities for meaningful growth? My educated guess is that they weren't seasons of ease and prosperity. The Puritan preacher John Bunyan once wrote, I have often seen that the afflicted are always the best sort of Christians. Bunyan goes on to demonstrate how often the quote-unquote good things in life, right, health, success, comfort, have little ultimate spiritual value. All the difficult things, pain, sorrow, darkness, can be sources of deep growth. And experience typically bears this out. Our desire to escape heartache and discomfort is understandable. Heartache and discomfort are things that I typically try to avoid. But they are the things that God has used most powerfully in my life in order to make me the person that I am. J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, the author of such books as The Lord of the Rings, perhaps you've heard of them, um, he suffered a great deal in his early life. Um, As an orphan and then as a soldier in World War I, he was well acquainted with tragedy, which is probably why suffering plays such a big role in just about all of his fiction works. But what does he have to say about the pain that he experienced? He wrote, It is one of the mysteries of pain that it is for the sufferer an opportunity for good, a path of ascent, however hard, for the essence of a fallen world is that the best cannot be attained by free enjoyment or by what is called self-realization, usually a nice name for self-indulgence, but by denial, by suffering, entailing great mortification. Much of our lives in this world are going to feel as though we are sojourning in a foreign land. But we can take comfort in the fact that God uses those times in the wilderness. Now, I recognize that I am saying this as someone for whom things have largely worked out. I'm in good health. My family is doing well. I love my job. There are times when physically I still feel mildly youthful. So you may not think that I have a lot of credibility when I get up here and say that God can use suffering. But someone no one can say that about is uh, Joni Erickson Tata, who at the age of 17 was permanently paralyzed in a diving accident and has spent her entire life since confined to a wheelchair. But leaning on God's strength, she has become an incredible Bible teacher. She's taught across the world, written over 48 books, and has brought the gospel in powerful ways to the disabled community for for over 40 years. And on the 50th anniversary of her accident, she reflected on God's steadfast love in her life, and she wrote, Decades of study, paralysis, pain, and cancer— 
have taught me to say it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. I won't rehearse all of suffering's benefits here. The process is difficult, but affliction isn't a killjoy. I don't think you could find a happier follower of Jesus than me. God shares his joy on his terms only, and those terms call for us to suffer in some measure like his son. I'll gladly take it. So friends, are you right now in the wilderness? I would encourage you to take heart because our God uses all things for good. And he knows exactly what you are enduring. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, for it was fitting that he, referring to Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Our God isn't indifferent to your pain. In fact, he cares about it so much that he was willing to take it on himself. Our Savior has suffered, and he is with you in the wilderness, using that time to form you and shape you into the person that you need to be. So will you trust him? Let's pray. Father, in thinking about this topic, we're confronted with just how fallen our world is and all the different ways in which people suffer pain and hardship, the way that we inflict pain and hardship on one another. But God, we ask that by your Spirit you would give us faith, that you'd help us to see that you are not indifferent to our suffering, to our pain, to our hardship, that you care deeply, so deeply that you are willing to take it on yourself. Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus who suffered beyond what we could comprehend so that suffering would ultimately cease. And God, we thank you for the assurance that we have right now that our suffering isn't wasted, that you are using it to make us into the people that you're calling us to be. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to trust in you that you'd give us eyes to see your goodness even in the most difficult circumstances. We need your help in order to do that, Lord. So God, please provide it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.